This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Gen Con. Gen Con. Emily Reinhardt interviewed at Gen Con. And Gen Con. As our beloved and sleekly accessorized listeners well know, our heads are full of ideas for games. Uh, sorry, I can't hear you over all these game ideas. If you are anything like us, you've also got some great ideas for games bubbling in your cranial region. But unlike excruciatingly humble podcast hosting game designers like ourselves, you may not know what to do next. Atlas Games to the rescue. The White Box, created by Atlas Games and Game Playwright, is a game design workshop in a box. It contains a ton of generic components. Like meeples, cubes, dice, tokens, and discs. And includes a 200-page book of 25 essays about game design and publishing. With topics like... Refining your design. Playtesting. Crowdfunding. And how to work a convention. In short, the white box has everything you need to get your game idea out of your head and onto the table. You can get the white box right now everywhere tabletop games are sold. Seriously, I can't even hear you over these game ideas. Oh, so, hey, Ken, uh, how scratchy is your voice? My voice is a little scratchy, Robin. It's as though I've been talking for uh, eight days straight. <laughs> yes. Uh, so we are back from Gen Con, and here, as, uh, as is our annual won't, uh, we are attempting to drill a core sample through our Gen Con experience and uh, therefore uh, try to figure out from there exactly what is going on with the tabletop gaming industry, what are the trends, uh, what's the vibe, and uh guess the, the big takeaway we'll get to in a bit, because the uh, before Gen Con starts, Gen Con starts uh, with the Diana Jones Awards, and uh, I think this sort of this feeds into what probably the, the main theme of the uh, whole show kind of is, at least for those of us in the RPG space. So uh, the concept of actual play, uh, won the Diana Jones Award, and a, uh, a bunch of uh, podcasters and streamers uh, got on stage to uh, share uh, uh, the honor and to take the uh, prize. I hear there may be something fun and, and streamery planned for the prize itself. Uh, so, Ken, uh, wh- uh, what do we think about that? Well, I mean, it's obvious that streaming is a giant part of the hobby going forward. It is as though... We are in the first dawning of the age of television, or perhaps something even more dramatic. But if you th- imagine the, I don't know who, the uh, car d- uh, dealers of America all getting together in 1947, they might indeed give their award to television because that was going to be a big part of selling cars and marketing them to people evermore. And streaming has definitely, pr- you know, proved itself. Uh, more than proved itself. One could argue that we're closer to the 1953 of streaming than we are the 1947, given that critical role has been on the, do you say air? It's been on the screen for well, what? On the tubes. On the tubes for a couple of years now. And, uh, obviously actual play, uh, podcasts go back even further than that. Um, the weird, uh, precursor and postcursor, because obviously actual play podcasts can be quite terrific in their own right, even without the visual component. And nowadays, Shows all I know 
kids listen to YouTube. They don't watch YouTube. So, uh, the YouTubers, the popular, uh, children that sit there and tell you about their thoughts on star Wars or whatever, uh, often you'll just <laughs> listen to them. Like they were a podcast, but with a picture. So I don't even, I don't even know what's going on, which is definitely a sign that it is the wave of the future. Robin. Right. Yes. During the Diana Jones awards, uh, if I knew anything about what was going on behind the scenes or had any sort of, uh, influence over which award uh, got awarded. I always prefer it when actual games uh, yeah, win I think, I think, uh, over, um, over trends. I, I think sort of the audience of uh, the Diana Jones Awards, to the effect there is one, would prefer that. Um, having a, a, a pair of fairly abstract awards in a row is maybe uh, a little weird, but there you go. That's how the ball bounces when you have a secret cabal. That's how the ball bounces, and and I can see the value of of the Dino Jones Collective uh, recognizing trends because they've uh, hit some some big uh, uh, waves in the past, and uh, others have not always been uh, noticed. And and of course, it remains the most uh, not only the most prestigious, but the most idiosyncratic of awards in that. Uh, radically different things are up against each other. So, right. you know, it was an academic journal versus a concept versus a contest versus two games. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the cookies, uh, I guess, I guess history will have to determine how the, how the cookies uh, crumble. But certainly, uh, I, I see the value, especially, uh, of having a bunch of, uh, different, uh, key streamers get up and, and, uh, see that recognition because I know from their point of view there has been a sense of a disconnect between the hobby or the or the industry I guess more like it and what they are doing and uh, you know we certainly at other times during the convention spent time uh, thinking and talking about ways for uh, us to integrate what we're doing more with what they're doing and uh, uh, and so we'll have to you know, continue thinking about that. And that involves uh, us learning a bunch of stuff that they have already figured out. Right. As is so often the case. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, I guess that's part of the, part of the quality of the Diana Jones award and, and part of why, you know, as they say, being nominated is the honor in itself because it does recognize so many different possible aspects of, of adventure gaming. And so, you know, to be, you know, called out as one of the aspects is, is pretty amazing, especially given that the Diana Jones cabal has to think about, you know, weird abstract tendencies or bunches of people doing a sort of design thing that no one really has put a name to yet. So, you know, just being nominated for the Diana Jones award is better than winning any other award in my personal opinion. Uh, yes, indeed. And, uh, streaming also, I think going forward, will start to change the, sorts of products that get made because the assumption of how people got into a role playing can now be, you know, quite different. And certainly the biggest of the streams are D and D focused. And so there's a, a group of people who are showing up at shows like PAX Unplugged who are like, we love role playing. What is it? So you'll see people, uh, you know, start to try to make games that answer that question for them that uh, form an easier bridge into the hobby. Right. Our, our, our old statement that anyone who buys a game from us must know what role playing is by now is once more back on the junk heap. <laughs> once more back in the junk heap. So if you have that opportunity, you know, that's a big opportunity to say, well, if you were building something from kind of sort of the ground up without uh, the assumptions of people who've been doing it for 30 or 20 or 10 years, uh, what do you do? What do you present to them? How do you reflect the sort of cultural generational differences that, uh, uh, you know, every 
uh, new generation values different things, and the uh, the times certainly surrounding us now are very different than uh, than when I first uh, started a gaming, and then again became involved in in the gaming industry. So that's uh, going to be a, a big ongoing influence, uh, both in obvious and and in subtle ways, not only in how games are sold, but in what games are uh, made, either to uh, you know, appeal to people who know uh, gaming through streaming or uh, things that work better on streaming. So it's going to be a, a really interesting creative challenge for the industry to react to. Yeah, Gen Con was certainly in, in the mix trying to react to it. Gen Con had its own stream, which I'm sure someone can watch. Uh, if they knew what they were doing. I uh, got 30,000 uh, yeah, views, which is good. jaw-dropping, right, to think that there are that many people who care about Gen Con. So I guess we're sliding into a discussion of the overall vibe of the show, and that uh, that fact alone, that there were that many people, presumably, I mean, some of them maybe were in their hotel rooms, but obviously, you know, there weren't uh, 300,000 people at Gen Con. Yeah, I, I shudder to think. There were not. Um, so it feels like we are moving more toward the San Diego Comic-Con where it's not only an event that people go to, but it's an event that people uh, follow from afar. And of course they, they've always done so right. Even in the years, the days of, you know, uh, mimeographed apazines, people would ask, you know, what was cool at Gen Con and the people who were at Gen Con would write up reports and, and file a Gen Con report in magazines, which uh, yeah. were a kind of a papery stream for people who don't know. Right. And so, you know, a, a month later, someone would write their Gen Con report, and then another month later, someone would comment on that and so forth. But now, of course, it's happening simultaneously. And uh, the, I remember the year that uh, podcasting was suddenly at Gen Con in numbers, <laughs> and they had yes. their first podcaster party, and they were like, this is going to be the year of the podcast, and we're all going to podcast about Gen Con. And uh, that, A you know, crazy idea, Ken. I don't think anyone would do that. Well, no, obviously, it, was, it, it, it ran into an iceberg and sank, and we never heard of uh, podcasting again. Especially, especially not, podcasting about Gen that's Con. That's ridiculous, Robin. Podcasting has to be alive. It has to capture the now. Can't be looking back to a gigantous uh, block party that uh, lasted for five days and drew uh, 60,000 plus people, the population of a small town, or actually yeah, a pretty a large small town, city. a small city. That's three times the size, roughly, of the small city that I grew up in. So right. this is yeah. pretty gigantic. It, it's a measurable chunk, even of, you know, if, if you if 60,000 people um, uh, show up in most cities, you notice it. Certainly you do in Indianapolis. And then that, obviously, that's just the attendees. There's also... Uh, people who work the show, uh, companies, etc. So you're looking at a pretty good chunk of people uh, showing up, all of them uh, bringing their best game, one hopes. Uh, certainly, um, when you look at the people that sort of drifted by our booth, we saw both the old standards, the folks who've been gaming since the days of Gary and Dave, and then we saw tons and tons of of what uh, you and I, I guess, uh, can no longer really call the kids because they're starting to get jobs and disposable income and whatnot, right? Yeah, and you certainly, uh, you know, every year more and more you see families together and, uh, you know, you see young gamers who, you know, the question, how did you get involved with role-playing? It's like, well, through my parents. Yeah, and, my uh, dad started running me D&D when I was 10 or whatever. Right. You know, listener Ray Slikinski and his son were there, both wearing Time Incorporated T-shirts one day, matching... Uh, Matching Ken and Robin merch, so because we are going to show up in so many therapists' conversations. <laughs> uh, well, 
his kids all seem seem pretty pretty uh, invested. But in also it. there were there were, you, you know we used to have and this goes back to you know I guess our first Gen Cons we used to have roaming gangs of thirteen and fourteen year old boys all dressed basically the same, uh, you know running around buying things and being thirteen and fourteen year old boys. This was the Gen Con that I noticed multiple gangs of thirteen and fourteen year old girls running around. Uh, dressed in, you know, sort of civilian Lara Croft type outfits, you know, shorts and t-shirts and a stick to fend off the 13 year old boys. And, you know, the, the whole nine yards, just like we were, except girls, uh, showing up and doing the exact same things, uh, that the gangs of boys used to do. So I don't know if that's the streaming audience or just the Pokemon generation, you know, continuing to come of age, but that was a uh, kind of a new thing that I noticed. You'd get individual, uh, I think for the last, you know, five or 10 years, we've seen, uh, some women show up with their boyfriends in tow and the boyfriend is like, God, oh, do I have to be here? And the woman's like, yes, I'm buying games. <laughs> and, uh, that was always fun. But now the, to see the, uh, the, the, the Hegelian, um, uh, disintegration of society uh, extend out to the other gender. That's delightful. Yeah. And uh, that's an obvious consequence of, uh, you know, D and D is headed toward gender parity. And that's, uh, you know, even right there, that would be a doubling of our audience. But with uh, streaming, we're seeing more than a doubling of our audience. And uh, with that growth uh, comes uh, growing pains. Uh, You briefly mentioned the, the attendance. And I think we want to, kind of suggest that the con attendance is always a bit of a puzzle. They give you turnstiles versus uniques and, you know, and this year they just said substantially more than 60,000. And so mm-hmm. far we don't know what substantially means. And of course, Gen Con doesn't have to tell us, even if we bat our dewy eyes at them, Ask but them it certainly felt uh, <laughs> bigger and, uh, you know, that there were more people there. Uh, you know, they sell out of four day badges, but they decide how many four day badges there are. And, and we don't know that. Apparently there were a lot more Sunday badges than other years. And that I think must have been people in the gaming halls rather than the exhibit hall. Yeah. So there's another, you know, question of, you know, has uh, with the new audience, how focused are they on the exhibit hall? Where are, where are they going? Are they just going to their gaming area? Um, and, and also, uh, well, I was about to say the word unfortunately. So before I, I say a sad word, say sad uh, why don't words. we uh, head out to a, a commercial and then come right on back. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. 
The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pelgrane Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? So uh, we're back, and we're talking about growing pains uh, in gaming and in Gen Con, and uh, what we're seeing is, uh, you know, the uh, three small cities uh, banding together and descending on Gen Con. Uh, I think we're starting to see uh, a little bit of fraying at the edges, and, and sadly, uh, even more of the problems of, you know, wrangling that many people uh, we're starting to see sort of more problems at the edges. So uh, really disturbingly, uh, there's a news report of a man who has been arrested for leaving his daughter in his car in a parking garage to go off and yeah. play games at Gen Con, uh, which is not good. No, and, don't do that. Even if, yeah. even if you think you're, you're just going to get in one hand or whatever, that's, that's, that's not right. That's so incredibly distressing. And, you know, that's middle-aged man doing that. You know, there are cases of, uh, you know, the intentional targeted harassers who used to occupy the online space are now coming into meat space to be horrible and, and get ejected and, uh, or uh, not get ejected uh, as the case may be, or not get ejected <laughs> if they didn't get caught. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are certainly, uh, and the difficulty of policing this many people in a spread out space. Uh, you know, just in terms of, of sexual harassment, whether it's, uh, you know, groping or stalking, that there's, you know, Gen Con has a really robust uh, sexual harassment policy, but things are happening all over the place, and the ability to react in real time and uh, uh, nab these guys and have an, enough of a disincentive for, for them to, you know, never darken Gen Con's doors again, that's a real uh, challenge, and I think they're going to have to seriously... Uh, look at ways of, uh, you know, going even further in, in years ahead because, you know, this has to be a safe, fun place uh, to all get together and play together and feel that sense of community or, yeah. you know, that, that we've lost the entire point of this hobby. Right. The Contessa program that does uh, women and uh, people of color and uh, gay and other non-traditional game masters uh, running great events uh, in Lucas Oil uh, the last few years. They had a bunch of these incidents, and partly as a consequence of that, they are not coming back to Gen Con for at least five years, which is going to be a real, you know, that is going to be a real blow that Gen Con will feel, and you have to kind of think it could have been avoided, right? Well, yeah, certainly by, you know, better coordination and, and the... You know, I'm I'm not an expert on event security. I don't know <laughs> right. how to solve those problems, but that's that's something we've got to be more aware of and and be you know I, I hope you know they can find ways of uh, you know making people uh, not only feel safer and not only talk about safety, but but to be safer. And, right. Uh, it's you know I don't want to sound like a naive person who's indicating that this is the first time this has ever been a problem because that's far from the truth. But it does sort of indicate that as the hobby becomes bigger and therefore more like the general population that we're going to have the sorts of problems that it, you get when you are, uh, you know, trying to control and, and, and monitor the, the actions of, of that many people. And with the events spread out uh, so far and so many things happening 
you know, not at official Gen Con locations, but in, uh, you know, different bars and so forth or in, uh, hotel areas. It's just, uh, it's, it's something that is, uh, that is sobering and I think, uh, requires a lot of thought. And I'm really rooting for, for Gen Con to be able to find, uh, innovative ways of, of dealing with that because, uh, all of the benefits of, uh, bringing in more people or are going to be, you know, dashed against the shoals if we can't, uh, deal with the consequences of, of having, uh, this many people together. It's got right. If be, it can't remain the best four days in gaming for everyone that actually shows up. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, it can't be because, uh, you know, certainly, uh, there's other uh, events of this size that as they scale up have had, uh, even worse problems or, uh, you know, certainly, uh, San Diego Comic-Con, people have even needed bodyguards on the floor because there's a subject of, of harassment. And part of it is the, the tenor of our times, the, the sort of creeping, self-motivated uh, agents of individual authoritarianism are, are coming out of the woodwork. And it's, uh, it casts sort of a real pall on what otherwise would be this exciting uh, growth of, uh, of, of people. And also, I, um, now this may be colored by the fact that we both did extra days of meetings on either end of the show, but it also felt to me, and I think other people were saying as well, that the show also is just getting to be more of a physical challenge in terms of getting from place to place and, you know, how long well, you a have big, to wait. A big chunk of that is, you know, the, it's another factor of the attendance. I mean, yeah. you also bring more people. You have more people in line for all the food events. You have people, you know, jamming into the bathrooms. You have people jamming up the show floor. It, it, I did not go out into the hallways uh, of the convention center as much this show, mostly because I was, uh, pinned to the uh, booth more like a card and mostly because the geography of our particular show appearance, uh, kept us out of them. So I wasn't, uh, having my, you know, Dragon Con flashback moments, but I'm, I'm certain that the, the hallways didn't get less crowded. And, and this right. is, you know, this is another one of those problems of success. And even if Indianapolis is able to increase its carrying capacity to hold this many people, the convention center may not be able to, and there may have to be some rethinking of the show's geography as well. Right. Right. And of course they added major new facility this year because last year, Lucas Oil Stadium's floor was given over to gaming. Uh, all and, not as much gaming as it could fit in, right? right. There were times when I went over there and there were a lot of empty tables. Well, not this time. And also, uh, the seminars, including, uh, Cardus Live, which will, uh, drop later probably to cover while I'm at the film festival. Who knew that they had big old meeting rooms? Right. And they were, uh, a little bigger than the meeting rooms that we we're used to in the Crown Plaza. And that's great. If it fit more people, you know, at our podcast, uh, even though it sold out, other people got to come in and sit down, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, so that means there's a big old corridor from the exhibit hall to Lucas Oil that used to be kind of quiet, and you could sort of duck in there if you needed a moment of, uh, you know, not so busy. And now there's, you know, big traffic going up and down there. And uh, I think the challenges of making it feel like a fun party of a group of people who all have something in common are, are also something that... Uh, that Gen Con is going to uh, uh, wrestle with, and they're all smart people, and uh, I'm sure they will overcome that. But uh, it's, you know, that the balance between biggest and best is starting to show. Right. And it's not that this is unexplored space. I mean, obviously, 
theme parks have to deal with this exact same kind of problem every day. Uh, plenty of other, uh, events draw more than 60,000 people, substantially more. Uh, comic, you mentioned Comic Con, but Toy Fair in New York, um, uh, Dragon Con in Atlanta, all of those are well over the size of Gen Con. And so that expertise is out there and you can, you can even look at a given thing and say, well, the way that they did it, we don't like how that turned out. So maybe we'll you know, try and blend it with this other best of breed mass party weekend thing. Um, we obviously can't build a, a bespoke facility like Disney World, but I think we can go a little more towards making Gen Con run smoother for more people, whether that be, you know, rethinking the show's geography in Indianapolis or as I pray regularly to um, uh, fathers uh, Marquette and Juliet. Uh, move the show to Chicago, which can swallow up 80,000 people and never notice it. Yes. Okay. So both of us had a bunch of panels this year. I uh, thought I had five. Turned out I had six. <laughs> How about you? April Fool. Um, I wound up doing, was it, maybe it was five. I'm going to say five. I'll say five really confidently and it'll be five. Right. So we did through Pelgrane. We have sort of a, a, a arrived at kind of a standard uh, series of uh, topics that people continue to show interest in every year. So uh, some of which I uh, remember to record. I think last year I also forgot my, on my first day to put the mic in my bag. And so, uh, the, uh, the gumshoe one to one panel is the one that, uh, unfortunately goes forever unrecorded. And that's sort of a newer topic that I, I, I wish I had not flaked on. And then, of course, there's the issue of, is there loud filk music in the, in the room next door <laughs> while you're doing your presentation? We lucked out, uh, for Cardus Live, but, uh, the, for the dramatic interaction panel, there was some, uh, Pretty heavy sound seepage that may or may not have been recorded by my intrepid uh, trusty travel mic. So we'll uh, we'll see how that everyone goes. cross fingers. This year it was uh, Cat Tobin who was uh, joining a regular Shell Con and myself for uh, for that talk, and that was very interesting because uh, so what we do with these these panels is we start off by polling the crowd to see how many people are familiar with the game line that we're going to talk about that relates to the topic. So uh, in uh, the one-to-one panel, about a third of people knew Cthulhu Confidential already. Uh, in the investigative panel, that's probably around three-quarters knew uh, Gumshoe already, so yeah. that became kind of more Gumshoe-specific, whereas uh, for the dramatic interaction one, uh, a uh, you know only a few people knew Drama System, so uh, that was more about sort of looking at the basic concepts of how... Uh, PCs can interact and, you know, and basically it became, here's how drama system works and here's how you, all the different components of it that you can steal and use in your regular games. And one of the, uh, things that, uh, you know, I sort of wound up realizing uh, as I was talking, uh, which is a good thing about panels is that, um, you know, even in my group that now when we play things other than drama system, interactions go much smoother because people have internalized the way they ought to work so that even if they don't get a drama token, now they're much more likely to arrive at a resolution and move on than they are to deadlock the way that otherwise happens in most trad games where the PCs have a dispute. So uh, that was uh, a, a, a fun insight to, to have and then to convey. And uh, so it, it goes to show that, you know, if you have a sufficiently broad panel topic in the masterclass format as opposed to the here's what we're releasing this year format that uh, y- that even you as a designer can learn 
something new about your game in the process of discussing it. And we in the, in the investigative, uh, role playing, a lot of the questions were from people who were running F20 games and they were like, in a magic, in a world of magic, how do we do this? And if you've got spells and if, and so I think that of, I mean, like you say, we had a bunch of people who knew gumshoe, but I think the people who didn't know gumshoe were also really thirsty for that style of play. And we gave the standard wonderful advice that we always give. And so I, I hope we maybe sort of got some people thinking, like you say, about how to do things maybe a little differently in their home game, which is, I guess, part of the point, at least of running these panels. Uh, right. Yeah. So, and you, uh, had uh, the Delta Green panel. We'll get to yep. the the triumph of Arc Dream over uh, all who uh, surveyed them. This was really their year. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, what was sort of the vibe at the at the Arc Dream panel? Oh, the Delta Green panel is always so much fun because it's always the bunch of us. Uh, the you know Dennis and Scott and uh, uh, Shane and then Greg Stolze and myself usually up busting on each other uh, while an audience that is just the the Maybe it's just because they've been, you know, promised wonderful things for so long and they finally got them. But even before they got them, they were always in a great mood. They were always really receptive and open. They were really a, 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 a active, positive fan base. Um, I, Dennis says he gets mean letters from people, but they never show up to the, to the show. It's always really, really a, a panel of love. And so we, you know, uh, I do my little dance about whatever tiny thing it is that I've done. And then Shane sort of dumps like, eight years worth of planned releases on them and everyone coos and Googles. And then we all start talking about horrible missteps of the national security state, which is what everyone really wants to do in the first place that and make fun of uh, Greg and Dennis. And so it's, it, it's always just a, a really great, it's more of a little, um uh, I don't know, a clubhouse than a panel, but it, it, it does the job and it's always really professionally recorded. And I'm sure that Shane uses that to propel Arc Dream to the ever greater heights that, to which we have alluded. Right. So my uh, semi-surprise panel uh, was the RuneQuest panel. I uh, thought I was stopping by to just briefly stand up and uh, uh, reveal what my new thing was, but I wound up uh, participating as a panelist for the whole shebang, and uh, so it's very delightful to uh, answer questions about uh, uh, Gen Con. The moderator was uh, Ellie Akers, who's a new member of the Chaosium crew. She's their North American convention organizer, and especially delightfully to me, speaking of new ways for people to enter the hobby, her entryway to Glorantha was through the King of Dragon Pass game that I uh, worked on low so many years ago and uh, came back a while ago uh, and now has a follow-up in uh, Six Ages Ride Like the Wind. So, uh, again, you know, just a little, uh, you know, the... Some of us on the panel had uh, much earlier exposures to to RuneQuest, so uh, that uh, resurgence uh, is uh, is well in hand, and there's some exciting and things. And is delightful. From, uh, and it's delightful from uh, Jeff Richard shepherding that line. Uh, and then, and then my fandom is just old enough to remember the first dawn of RuneQuest. Yes. And seeing it happen again with the new crowd uh, in this new era where everything is possible, assuming you have a good Twitch stream is pretty exciting. Right, and it's not just, you know, the people who yearn for the olden days of leg greaves and strike ranks who are jumping aboard uh, RuneQuest, but there are, uh, you know, as you would expect, uh, cycles repeat, and there are people who are uh, encountering D&D and going, what if this was way deadlier and, <laughs> you know, had hit locations, and, you know, what if this is crunchier? Uh, and so, and, and what uh, if the know, world were full of shamanry and weirdness? That too. 
And uh, and people have all sorts of different games now to explore Glorantha. They have uh, 13th Age, uh, the Lucy Goosey F20 game. Uh, they have uh, Hero Quest, my very uh, uh, narrative storytelling uh, abstract system. And now they have the the original granddaddy uh, of uh, deadly detailed uh, combat. And and all of them share that mythic aspect. But the Ordinary life that you're leading as an adventurer and your likeliness to die if you're dry gulched by a sentient baboon are, are different in all three games. Right. <laughs> and so, and that's an interesting thing in that you, you know, players will have to, uh, in fact, uh, adjust their decision making based on which, uh, game system they're uh, playing. So, uh, why listeners, you might ask, uh, were you on the request panel? And that was to announce that I'm going to be writing the new uh, Big Rubble and then Pavis books. Uh, and so uh, that's a very exciting opportunity for me to uh, recapitulate uh, one of the classic tag team, uh, well, there aren't a lot of tag team uh, uh, supplements, but, you know, two of the classic supplements of this line and, uh, in fact, of, of all you know, early gaming. So yeah. uh, that's a, a huge uh, honor and a responsibility. But right now, let's, uh, we've talked enough uh, for a while, so let's, Let's hear another voice after this commercial. Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666. He discovered the way that alchemical truths That sounds can be fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Make sure this podcast never has to tear down its booth by joining such Patreon backers as... Ryan Junk. Urs Blumentritt. Jeffrey Cars. Jean-Francois Paradis. And Joshua Brumley. Once more, we rocket back in time to the scaldingly... Actually, they were perfectly temperate day before Gen Con... <laughs> Uh, in Indianapolis, in a hotel room, hence the echoing ambiance that signifies a Ken and or Robin talk to someone else segment. And today, that someone else that Ken and Robin are talking to is Emily Reinhardt, who is here to tell us, uh, first of all, uh, why she is so terrific. Is there like a secret? Is there an unguent, maybe? But also to talk about 
her game, Domina Magica, which is a magical girl game, uh, but with Latin. So already everything you want in a game, right? Yes. Um, Emily, thanks so much for coming on this on the Ken and or Robin segment of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, happy to do it. Tell us a little bit about the, the game, the high concept, the core activity. Who's it for? Who's going to play it? What are they going to do? And why are they going to love the hell out of it and hate all other lesser games? Oh, everyone's going to love it forever. Um, it starts back the, back in time when Emily was a little 16-year-old playing uh, RPG games. I really wanted to play this magical girl genre because I loved it, starting with Sailor Moon and Card Capture Scora. Ever since I saw the whole magical renaissance back in the 90s, I really wanted a game that emulated that. And growing up through the years, I never really found one, um, and I just decided because to make my own. most game designers are doughy, horrible men. <laughs> so well, You uh, do not want to design a magical girl game, quite frankly. And I'll just put it out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought I was a really good person to start this whole journey of, of creating a magical girl game so that way I could give people the experience that I wanted as a kid and even now. As an and adult. now, for people who don't know the genre, I mean, obviously, Robin and I are expert <laughs> animeists, but... <laughs> yeah. So I, I know all the different sailor planets. Oh yes, but uh, for people who don't necessarily, what are the sort of what's the core of the magical girl genre? What makes something a magical girl uh, property versus a regular old girl property? So I actually do a whole panel about this, and it could, I could talk about this for hours. How about a couple minutes? <laughs> okay, sum it up real quick. Uh, it is a subgenre of the Japanese anime manga um, kind of fantasy genre that started back in the fifties, actually, or maybe even earlier. Historians are kind of. Still debating over where it started, but they'll do that. It started in Japan when um, they actually uh, Japanese people loved the um, American show Bewitched because they were like, "Wait, witches can be hot and beautiful and not these disgusting bog hags." And you know that was their term of witch. So when they saw these magical women that were beautiful and strong and sexy, they were like, "We can do that." So they started, you know, these anime shows called Sally the Witch and. It kind of headed from there and started, uh, rocketed from there and, and became all these different animes. Uh, and I think what really sets apart a magical girl from a regular anime like Power Rangers or something like that is that it's a female character, usually with a group of, group of women, who tap into their magical powers to transform or use magic to fight. Right. That's really, you know, then we get into the whole, well, is Shira a magical girl? And right. we get into all that debate. Let's, but let's, not, <laughs> let's, let's not start that. Let's not have to break out the old... Yeah. Um, uh, Listeners are tired of the semantics of the... Uh, right. The, and they're tired of Ken saying, uh, we're going to talk about uh, proportion theory. <laughs> uh, so uh, Domina, in Domina Magica, the specific girls are what and where does their magic come from? So you literally start as a schoolgirl first. You have to build your character as a schoolgirl and live right. your day-to-day life as a schoolgirl first because that is the that is usually the first uh, trope that you fall into in magical gen- genre is you're a schoolgirl, whether, whether it be like middle school, high school, you know, whatever. But this is how you find out who's mean to you and, exactly, and, and which yeah. teachers are gross and whatever else, right? Exactly. And then halfway through the game, you and your group of friends, because uh, you've all been established that you are, you know, friends already, Find a mystical item, animal, book, wand, whatever, and then you uh, find out that you are the chosen magical next generation of magical girls to fight the oncoming evil. Now, in the game Best Friends, uh, it begins with bitter personal rivalries and hatreds amongst the group of girls, Mm -hmm. uh, which is also true to a lot of stuff in that space. 
does that happen in Domino Magica? Is, is there a there's one of the magical girls who's your magical snake girl who's going to betray the other ones? Is there what what is there an inner mechanic or is it just nope? We're all great friends. Each of us has a color or a planet or a gemstone, and that's how it's going to be. It's it's there, but on a on a kind of more less dramatic scale, very small scale. It's it's called your your connections and complications. And so each girl, even though you have a very good friendship with that girl, there's still something there that might cause a little bit of. Friction. Uh, yeah, friction. Maybe you so, like the same person. Exactly. Or, or so you whatever. guys are both on the same varsity ba- you know, volleyball team, but you both have a crush on the same coach. Right, yeah. So how are you going to resolve that? So, yeah, you do have that a little bit, but it's not as destructive as some games out there. Cool, because that's not the point yeah, of the game necessarily. You're not trying to be backstabbed. As a lot of my players have found out, it's not magical mean girls. Right, it's just magical regular girls. Magical regular right. girls, yeah. So who brings the meanness? Who are the antagonists that you're dealing with? Um, usually, uh, it's usually like I'll throw in, you know, teachers, school bullies. There's a lot of, uh, you know, different bullies. Just uh, you have the clique girls, the popular girls, you know, you've got the rival school that comes in. And then, of course, you have the uh, ever-impending evil threat of of the whatever that's in, you know, have come to invade this world. So Whatever that is also, is. yeah. Right. So that's also invading the school and causing mayhem. Um, so is this uh, geared to uh, campaign play? And if so, how does it how does it build over the course of a series? It's really more of a one shot, um, just because a lot of the fun of playing a magical world is you get to transform for the first time. So if you were to make it an episodic thing, you could, but the mechanics of the game is really like you are schoolgirl for the first half and then magical right. girl for the second so half. So you start off as a schoolgirl, mm-hmm. is it? That's like ninety minutes. Yeah. Time, so, so it's it's yeah it it's more it's way more designed for a a one shot. I do want to down the road maybe kind of tweak a little bit of the rules to make it more kind of okay campaign setting but as my partner has realized that I want to throw everything in this game I wanted to do everything all the time and you know I've really had to scale it back and go no I need to focus on one thing at a time and make it a linear (laughs) instead of trying to throw I think a, a concept where you play four sessions and each is one year of the school year could be fun and you could introduce some changes each time but not necessarily go bananas with it and I don't think it gets boring turning magic four times. That and actually that that helps too because in the beginning of the game you as your friends you build a cootie catcher mm-hmm. and that literally is the setting of your game. So it could be every year you have a different cootie catcher that represents what has happened in your life, what is going to happen. Right. Yeah. And I, I I'm I think that one of the fun things about the genre is you see them as their normal selves. They overcome those problems as a magical girl. There's demons or whatever stupid thing, but then. The other thing that's happening is they're changing. I mean, they're they're adolescents, right? They're changing their personalities. They're experimenting with new uh, behaviors or whatever else. Their personal life is sort of the other arc of it, and they're not fighting their inner demons necessarily, though maybe they are. But they're you know saying, okay, already this giant change came into my life when I found the the rubies of of, um, uh, of Aphrodite or whatever. But now another change has come into my life because oh my god. Uh, he's so dreamy, and I've never felt anything. No one has ever felt anything like this before. And that becomes as important to you as the rubies of Aphrodite were, and that, you know, alters the storyline. And that's sort of the fun way to follow those characters, because, you know, that high school arc is a very natural one for our for our story history. Do you, when you've um, been playtesting it, do you find yourself at the end of the game saying, great, we have told the story, everything is great? Or is it like, ah, I wish we could 
stay with these characters because now we finally know what Marcy was up to. Yeah, yeah. There, there's been some uh, some games where uh, after we end the play session, um, I hand out these little cards as your report cards, and mm-hmm. you kind of write down your little like. Um, PSA to the kids of like, what did you learn this episode? Mm-hmm. And after we get done with that, they're like, okay, so when's our next adventure? Like, how are we going to continue the, you know, cute cutie catcher club or, you know, whatever, whatever name that they've right come now. up with? Yeah, flower power club or stuff like that. They're like, what's our next episode? And then they even, um, my character sheets, you are able to draw your character. So then people really come attached to these characters because you've got, they draw their schoolgirl character and then they draw their magical girl character that they change into. And so they want to like continue. They don't want it to just let that person, you know, die with one, you know. So we do get to the end and be like, all right, what's, when's our next episode? And I mean, leaving wanting more is, is great. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that as a principle, but, um, uh, I mean, you've, you've got a, you've got a concept and a, and a genre and a structure that's so strong, you know, maybe see what Marcy is up to. <laughs> I'm just saying. So, um, have you had the chance to, uh, run this for people who are the age you were when you first fell in love with this genre? Not yet. I have not had many. I've, I've had um, I've had a lot of uh, men who have no idea what a magical girl genre is, but they know a lot about role-playing. I've had a lot of men who are the opposite and like magical girls but don't know what role-playing is. And then I've had females, too. I've had a whole group of females who knew about the genre, know what role-playing is. Like, they were like, it, that game oh, see, was that awesome. has to have been, like, the gold standard Ooh, on a magic game, right? It got emotional. Like, there was some times where I, I, I was like, I'm not Jim. I don't need you to cry on this game. I don't... You know, I don't, I'm not powered by tears, but it, it got a little emotional, so that was really fun. But no, I have not um, playtested it for any um, younger audience yet. But you, I'm sure, will. Oh, yeah, I want to, so yeah. bad. Um, do you have, I mean, when you were that age, when you were, you know, in high school, what was your gaming experience like? What was your gaming life like? Uh, or were you I, too cool to be gaming? No, no, when I was 16, my, my, I got pulled into this, you know, very nerdy group, and I worked at Barnes Noble, so of course we were all, you know, very intellectual and you know, I had a girl who was like, hey, just want to come over to my house and hang, watch some anime. I was like, sure. So I went in there and saw, like, I was like, what's all with all the dice and, and the bowl of, you know, Reese pieces in the middle of the table and <laughs> all these character sheets. And so I got pulled into to gaming and RPGs that way. But for the most part, it was a lot of D&D, Pathfinder, you know, the normal right. paths. And then I started, after, you know, years and years of D&D and years and years of L5R, then it was kind of like, oh, my gosh, there's so many different RPGs that have different experiences and that's when I thought that the magical girl genre just didn't have very much of. So it's it was pretty like, much the Buffy role playing game and bits of big eyes, small mouth, and that's kind of it, right? Well, a lot of people actually are saying that Buffy is technically a magical girl. So. That's right. <laughs> I've always thought that. Except that yep. uh, like Willow aside, none of her friends are super magic. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so what uh, have players done uh, when you're running for them that has surprised you? Oh, they, uh, they get real into it. Um, I actually, I accidentally, completely by accident last year, I bought Lunchables because I thought that'd be really fun to have kind of like a lunch break. And I'm like, you're supposed to be in high school, right? You have Lunchables. And they opened their Lunchables to reveal comics. And each comic that a player got pertained to the story we were playing. And I had no idea. I had just picked them up that morning on a whim at Kroger. Um, so that really, that was fun where they so all were like... the Lunchables random system. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, you know, that's Lunchables, Tarot, Domino, TM, <laughs> coming soon. But I think what surprised me most is just they get, they get so much into role-playing their characters that I'm like, 
uh, okay, I'm watching the clock. You know, we get to, we got to get to the transformation. And they're like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. So they <laughs> love role playing these schoolgirls for so long that I feel almost, I feel bad because then we get to the transformation sequence and they're fighting their magic evil. And I'm like, are you guys sure you want to keep going? They're like, yeah, 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 we're, we're fine. We're fine. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, you know, a three and a half hour play session comes four and a half. And, right. you know, that's, that's really surprised me of them loving to play these schoolgirl characters so much that the transformation isn't the, the, cause I feel like if I were playing with the, you know, playing a game, I'd be like, all right, when am I going to be able yeah. to transform? Where's when my am power? I, yeah. Where, where's my magic wand that I get to, you know, call out my, you know, five, six, seven word attack and, but but that actually surprised me the most is my players, you know, getting into these roles and just and with do you it. think that I mean, and it's not an either or, do you think that is a strength of the genre that just everyone likes uh, pretending high school now that they don't have to be in it? Or is it the uh mechanics that you've built for playing and sort of in, inhabiting these high school stories? I think it's probably a bit of both, honestly. I, I really do. I think, you know, the world that I have set up allows them to really express their 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 inner middle school or high school girl, and them getting just together with you know a group of four or five you know people loving that it really just it keeps going. And I just I'll stay out of it. I'm like you guys keep going. You you talk about that boy. You talk about right. how awful that teacher was, or you know. So um, I think it's probably a bit of both. That's terrific. When we did bu- uh, Bubble Gumshoe, which is the same sort of thing, it, it was still female centric. It wasn't as female focused. But I am light years away from being a high school girl. I was not even one when I was in high school, for God's sake. And trying to design a space that would make that school interesting, I mean, I I know it succeeded because, thank God, we had Emily Careboss, but... I always figure that being a gumshoe game, people are like, yeah, when, when is the gym teacher going to get murdered? So the notion that you've got a involving high school experience is, I mean, I, I think, you know, that's a good thing. Don't, don't dismiss that and say, oh, that's just an emergent property. I mean, that's, that's terrific that that part is also fun because, uh, I think Robin and I both talked about sort of non-genre role play is something that is going to only get bigger, right? And so, just the high school half of Magical Girl is going to be a genre that people will play in, just like it's a genre people set uh, TV shows in. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have a Kickstarter on now. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about that. Oh, okay, so it's my first Kickstarter. Uh, it is not Third Act's first Kickstarter, but it's my first personal one. And I am just nervous and excited and want to throw up at the same time that I want to, like, cry and jump and everything. Um, but I really like the artwork that's come out. Everything that we've had with the Kickstarter page looks amazing. The artwork came together in time. The um, Oh, I have a present for you, too. Slap bracelets arrived in time. Ah, ah. <laughs> so we have slap bracelets, and we gave those out uh, you know, prior and just said, you know, hey, guys, just flood social media with them on the, the day that the Kickstarter launched. And just, you know, every I wanted to start a movement as well as a Kickstarter. I wanted, you know, I wanted these flooding the, the social media of not just fight, you know, bracelets, but fight like a magical girl. So it was more for me to you know, express not only my love for RPGs, but also my love for the magical genre of, yes, fight like a girl. It should not be a bad thing. It should not, fight like a girl should not mean what it used to mean of, you know, oh, you throw like a girl. It's like, yeah, I do. I do throw like a girl, you know. Throw I'm, down like a girl. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm technically, you know, I'm a second degree black belt in Kung Fu and I fight, you know, guys all the time. So I love that persona of strong female character and, you know, that's what I wanted with these is I wanted that kind of like, yeah, I do fight like a magical girl. Um, and so have you got uh, cool stretch goals lined up? We do. We have some, you know, very uh, specific ones, and then we have some ridiculous ones. Like, um, I forget the number without looking at it, but uh, I know there's one on there 
if we reach, I think it's, you know, something ridiculous like 30,000 or whatever, um, I'm going to get two, or I think I'm going to get a black cat and let the backers name it. Wow. Which, so, so yeah. as, as the owner of a black cat, you may want to rethink. <laughs> no, I'm ready. I, I wanna, I want I've wanted a black cat for a, a little bit now since. Well, uh, try and get one without a demon in it. Okay. That's just all I suggest. <laughs> well, I don't know. I had one for 17 years and, oof. Yeah. He had a demon in him, All so right. maybe well, this time. Agree to disagree. Yeah. During this conjunction with the magical girl Kickstarter, there's no chance the cat will have a demon in it. Don't worry about that. That's right. Yeah. Um, so people can uh, search for uh, the uh, Domino Magica, Domino Magica mm-hmm. on uh, Kickstarter, and can they find you on social media? Yep, uh, I'm there at Kickass Emily. Uh, awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming by, and I'm sure you're, as people listen to this, that your Kickstarter is uh, doing swimmingly. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agents Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? Okay, Ken, so we're back. Uh, just you and I, we've traveled forward in time, uh, not to during Gen Con, but after Gen Con. And uh, I guess I should also very quickly announce something uh, that Pelgrane is doing. Uh, Kate Bullock, fellow Torontonian, Toronto represent, is uh, going to be designing a new game for Pelgrane called Robot Dreams. Uh, and this is, uh, I don't want to talk too much about it because I want uh, her to be able to uh, reveal it on a post on the Pelgrane site. But basically, it's a far future setting. Uh, everybody is a, a synthetic person. Uh, and uh, one of the great overarching mysteries is what happened to the friends who, uh, who, who long ago uh, built the, uh, the robots but are now uh, gone. And so uh, this is, a, she's got some super interesting ideas to uh, ping off. Uh, sort of uh, contemporary ethos and uh, the corpus of uh, robot-based science fiction, and it's our opportunity to have uh, a sort of a entry-level uh, Pelgrane uh, gumshoe game that is about the size of the Esoterrorist and uh, Fear itself, but is not a hard horror game, so that uh, it has a, a broader possible sweep of people who could come in and play this for the first time at, at a convention without having all of the uh, lovely, beautiful body horror things that could happen in either of those uh, two uh, games. So uh, you wanted to talk about uh, the Vampire 5e panel. How did that go? Well, that was the other panel that we alluded to earlier when I announced that I'd uh, gone to five panels. And that was the fifth. I don't know if it was the fifth in number, but it was the 
it has a five right in it, so let's call it that one. That one was uh one where the whole vampire team uh was up and announcing and again uh everyone was super excited and positive and happy to be there. Uh I think that the fans of Vampire have been waiting a long old time for a new vampire and uh this one seems to have done really well with them. Uh, blew off the shelves at the at the show. Every time I would go to the White Wolf booth, I would see fewer copies of Vampire lying around. Same thing with Modifius or the other people selling it. And this was the chance for the whole creative team to sort of explain what we did and why we did it and for the uh, Down A and uh, Jason and the other marketing people to say what's coming next and oh my god they announced a cosmetics line at this panel is how much new weird stuff is coming next uh there's all manner of great things happening in the world of vampire that i was of course totally unaware of and uninvolved in so so are you designing the cosmetics line i was not they did not ask me i would have thought just put ground glass in the malkavian lipstick you're good but that is the kind of decision that Rapidly, I suspect, gets you thrown off the cosmetics team. Yes, I, I would imagine so. Yeah. And so um, we, we talked a, a, about the design, and uh, it's always a good thing when you've sort of gone through your, your list of things that you thought were, were high points of the design to have the uh, creative uh, uh, director of White Wolf say, but Ken, you forgot about messy criticals, perhaps your most brilliant innovation of all. <laughs> it's like, well, I guess I did, Martin. So, so that was great fun. And, uh, everyone had, you know, huge, you know, that it kind of a chance to take a bow after all of our work and, uh, the audience, uh, couldn't have been nicer and, and more appreciative of what we did. And it was, it was interesting because this is a real, you know, mega brand that is happening. And they, and they used words like, uh, transmedia, uh, non-ironically and in a Swedish accent. So that was pretty exciting. Uh, all manner of, of, of good things, uh, happening in the, in the white wolf, uh, space that I, you know, I got to build a little part of. So in a way, uh, not necessarily the big rubble of horror games, but I would say certainly up there. Well, uh, vampire certainly has a, a huge audience and the, uh, the numbers that I heard for the initial sales are it's like, oh, wow, this is back to mid-90s levels. Yep. The, you know, the time when, you know, role-playing core books really sold. And so, you know, once again, another indication of uh, the uh, health of the industry, because that's not a Kickstarter. That's selling a bunch of books, mostly through retail. Right across the right across the counter to somebody. Um, and obviously, that's only just the first weekend of open release it's not even gonna hit uh, most game stores until a week or so from now so yeah so you and i were uh walking on the hall at one point we were enumerating the different possible uh things that could be up for any's next year and uh it's it's going to be an incredible uh, uh traffic jam to all get into that lane of five nominations uh, we used to as, call as, the fratricidal missile deployment system in uh, Cold War era. Yes, f- fratricidal, especially for someone who has two different core books out <laughs> yes. in the same calendar year. That may uh, or may not have been my best plan ever. Right, because at the Pelgrim booth, sh- should remind uh, ourselves, Fall of Delta Green not only uh, sold like uh, like hotcakes, it sold like hotcakes that we uh, didn't bring enough of. So right. it uh, it sold out. It's, it and, sold uh, like an inadequate number of hotcakes. It's not hot like cakes. there was a, a measly number then. <laughs> uh, so, uh, b- but that's next year's Ennies, mm-hmm. uh, in, in which you will get to kill yourself. This year's Ennies, numerically, Chaosium sort of did a, a double. They were the, the bells of the ball last year. And thanks to uh, their uh, card game, uh, Con of Cons, along with uh, some... Uh, well-esteemed RuneQuest and Call of Cthulhu products there. Uh, they picked up the most uh, gold and silver ennies. But to me, it really felt like the 
the year of arc dream because they're uh, delta green uh one in a whole bunch of different categories and it really felt uh to me like a great and i think perhaps to some of the people around stage with uh, medals as you know again a, a payback of the multi-year effort uh that they have put in slowly painstakingly artisanally uh, crafting <laughs> Uh, yeah. That particularly specific blend of, of Cthulhu and uh, national security techno thriller. Right. Everyone was super happy to get the Ennies that we got, uh, including uh, silvers for product of the year and best game. And then also golds for best rules and best interior design. And that's all on the core book. And then, of course... A lot of the adventures also won. So Night at the Opera won silver for best adventure and gold for best electronic book. So there was a lot of, of good stuff from Arc Dream that was honored. And, uh, I know that we all know that the labor theory of value is meretricious nonsense, but when you work as hard as Greg and uh, Shane and Dennis did on, uh, Delta Green, the role playing game and as, uh, fortuitously as I did, it's nice to see that, uh, get its reward. Um, and Cthulhu actually did really well in his, uh, multi-variant way because the other big winner was Harlem Unbound by our buddy Chris Spivey, Darker Hue, uh, studios. And Harlem Unbound won gold for best writing. It won gold for best setting and it won gold for best cover, uh, which is pretty amazing. Uh, the cover was by Brandon Reese, who did an amazing job. If you just looked at it right. you know, amongst all the rest of those covers, they're, they're, I, if it had not won gold, I would have just simply thrown up my hands because it was so clearly the best it, cover. It so vividly and completely and convincingly breaks the mold while telling you everything you need to know about the entry point into that uh, mm-hmm. book. It is, it's, I've been so glad to see something so uh, starkly unconventional uh, take the prize. And, uh, you know, that project itself, uh, I know, uh, you know, someone who's uh, worked a little with Chris, uh, um, meant a lot to me, and I was very excited uh, to see that. And even if I had never met Chris, I would be very excited because it's a really groundbreaking uh, product, uh, and I was very excited to uh, see it recognized. And go and Cthulhu also took our medal away from us, uh, <laughs> which there we they if you needed a reason to oppose Cthulhu and all of his doings. This would be why, but congratulations to our confreres, the Miskatonic University podcast for winning the gold medal for best podcast this year. Uh, may you wear it well and may no one strangle you with it. Yeah, I think may, we, may, we may it be great. extra sweet uh, as it hangs on your shelf. Mm-hmm. So uh, typically uh, the, the other question, question that I find much harder to answer then uh, anything about gaming is people will come up and say, where's the really great food in Indianapolis? <laughs> and because it is a very hard question to answer. <laughs> you, you've you've uh, grasped the nub of the issue there, Ken. And uh, there was one period where the answer was, well, you know, the hotel restaurants are kind of upping their game. And then that stopped being the answer. Yep. Uh, and then, uh, then it was, oh, the food trucks, they're really bringing it. And today, you know, maybe it was just my ill luck. But uh, I have to say that uh, some of the food trucks are more equal than others. Yeah, and uh, that is that the is, way. Uh, you know, less of the answer now. Uh, I guess Indy has really put on a push to be food truck city, but uh, some of those some of those food trucks are doing a more exciting uh, job with their different uh, cuisines than others. There was a place that I th- was wondering if we were going to get to because traditionally, when Robin and I arrive. 
on Monday, uh, we are sort of footloose and fancy free. Uh, it's just Robin and I sometimes will Yobst, uh, we're lucky enough to have him. And then we just sort of run around and, and our goofs, uh, this year, more of the Pelgrane team were there. So we had to sort of, uh, keep our ambitions low, but there was a place on the East side of Indianapolis that I can absolutely recommend because we ate there on the way to origins called his place eatery that advertises itself as a chicken and waffle place. But I've got to tell you the brisket is unbelievably good. All of the barbecue there is amazing. We didn't even have the chicken and waffles. We all gravitated the barbecue side of the menu. But sadly, there is meat in their collard greens, so we figured we could not bring a publisher and a co-owner of Pelgrain Press, Cat Tobin, to it without suffering condign punishment for our hubris in doing so. But if you are at loose with a car in Indianapolis... His place eatery on the east side is the best barbecue that I've had in the city. Squealers is also way up there, but that's on the north side. That's just as far out in another direction. Another, uh, this will seem like a change of topic, but, but hold on with me, people. It's not. Another thing that really struck me this year in terms of traffic flow was even though there were a record number of Sunday badges sold, this year, Indy shut down yeah. uh, at six. I was able to find lunch table at the Ram with no waiting on Sunday. Yeah. And, uh, so clearly the, who knows clearly what, or what any trend is, but it, it really seemed <laughs> like, you know, the, the, the hotel, uh, you know, the prices at the hotel that it seemed like there were a lot of people who would otherwise have stayed Sunday and gamed into the wee hours, uh, and then left on, on Monday morning that they were gone. They maybe they're, made they're, one last pass through the hall and then yeah. got in their cars yeah. and, or, or, or their bags were in the, what what must be the giant cavernous bag holding areas of all of those hotels and that they mm-hmm. were, you know, w- once the hall closed, uh, they were off to the airport. And uh, so the, the city really, really closed down. And this is why I feel ready to make an, a statement that would otherwise be against my own interests, because uh, traditionally uh, the Pelegrines have gone to the Ocean Air, a seafood restaurant in the downtown area for our celebratory meal. And we've always been a little cagey about that because... Uh, we want to be able to get a table. Yeah. But this year, you could have shot a cannon in there and only hit Pelgrains. Uh, please don't shoot a cannon Do in the Do not shoot Ocean a cannon in that restaurant, even if we're not there. We're, yes, regardless it's of that. uncool. I mean, all right, no, it's it's obviously cool to shoot cannons, but not in a restaurant. Right. Um, and so uh, I'm sure everyone has had the experience of having a restaurant that they go to uh, every year with a particular group of people, especially when they're out for an event. And usually... You know, if you like it enough to keep going, maybe generally it starts to sort of trail off in quality as restaurants tend to do. But this year, uh, the, the Ocean Air, which has a, a new chef, radically upped their game. Yes. And not just, uh, for uh, those of us who will eat fish, but for the vegetarians among us that, the, mm-hmm. you know, that has been an ongoing struggle again with the Ocean Air because restaurant in Indianapolis. Uh, but this time they had really great yeah. stuff. <laughs> the, when I, when I was looking for other restaurants besides the ocean air for this trip, um, and I, I went on Yelp and I sort of searched on the word vegetarian and with a cutoff for quality and uh, at the high end and right. of the 10 restaurants in the downtown area that were left after that search, um, the word vegetarian occurred in six of them as, well, there's not a lot of vegetarian options. Like, yeah. Oh, please. Vegetarians will be cruelly disappointed <laughs> by this. Vegetarians will once more be left under the bus by this establishment. Right. 
But it wasn't just in the vegetarian options that they raised their game. So uh, I saw an item on the menu that I took as a personal challenge, which was a chicken fried lobster. Uh, and when you read that, you think, uh, this is a joke, uh, yeah. but it's there. And in fact, that was the history of the dish was that uh, in uh, conjunction with the state fair, they sort of did this as a tribute to state fair food, somewhat tongue in cheek. I and I think in order to serve it to their CEO, so they put it briefly on the menu, but weirdly, it is really good. It's amazingly good. Yeah. The, the honey that is, uh, involved in the process, it's, it's kind of a, it's not honey glazed, but there's a strong honey flavor in the batter winds up blending the batter and the lobster amazingly well. And there's a fried lobster place in Chicago that I suspect is fried langoustines, but this was fried frickin' actual lobster and really chicken fried, not the sort of lumpy, bready goo that you get up with most chicken fried steaks. This was crunchy and um, uh, crisp and good, and it, you, you would put that on a chicken and not feel at all sad to have eaten that on a chicken, but to eat it on a lobster was very heaven. Uh, yes, and, and mine was not the, the only uh, good choice on, the, uh, on our table, and of course we did a lot of sharing because that's that's how we are. That's how you do. Yeah, I had the halibut, which was uh thing said uh what, I forget what it was called, uh, some crazy or something like that, but it was uh, uh the halibut in Old Bay uh cracker crust and I think mayonnaise was the other thing that was that went in and I, I said this is ridiculous. I'm going back to 1950 to eat my halibut. But <laughs> I like halibut. And the guy said, well, we kind of reinvented a classic cruise ship menu option. And I'm like, those are all good words that I like. So I'll gamble on it. And it was amazing. It was really good. It was the reason that people used to make things that way was you could make them be really, really tasty before everyone got sloppy and Mrs. Gordon the hell out of things. And so that it was exactly what he said. It was an old bay cracker crust that I suspect had mayonnaise or something like it as the bonding agent. But it was amazing. And the halibut, of course, uh, the seafood quality at uh, the ocean air is usually pretty good. And at this case, you know, I, either I got lucky or they've, but up their game there too. But the halibut was also super tasty. Robin can back me up. Right. Uh, so, and since we're no longer afraid of not getting a table on Sunday night, we're finally, now it can be told, we're ready to reveal. Uh, and uh, they up their game. So, uh, I think yeah. they're so well worth it. Yeah. Um, well, and, and on that gustatory note, I think it's time for us to go and uh, and have another post Gen Con nap, uh, and <laughs> One uh, of serious, and perhaps a, another post Gen Con nap after that, and perhaps after that a Gen Con nap. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Atlas Games, Palgrain Press, Asphagelm, Arc Dream, Dork Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast in the food truck of your heart by queuing up with such Patreon backers as Michael Bowman, Morgan Ellis. Raphael Pabst Dreaming Johnny And Rob Toll Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin Wear such shirts as Start With Earth On Twitter he's at Kenneth Height And he's at Robin D. Laws See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff